So by now, I'm hoping that you've heard about the brand new PodCore subscription that Speech Therapy PD has rolled out. For $79 a month, you get over 175 hours of ASHA continuing education with 19 new episodes a month. That's fantastic. Well, they want to make sure that you also know we have a brand new coupon code. So the coupon code is F as in first, B as in bite, followed by the number 20, FB20. And that brand new coupon code will give you $20 off the PodCourse subscription. So you get 175 hours of continuing ed, plus an average of 19 new hours a month, all for $59 a year. And we cover everything from early intervention to schools to adults to ethics. So be sure to type in F as in first, B as in bite, and then the number's 20. Enjoy your coupon, or as my kin folks say, enjoy that coupon. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and I guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate. By way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee byway of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Every once in a while, a friend will enter into your life. And when you look back years later, have you ever noticed you don't really remember how y'all met? You just know that they're your person and they exist. And that simple fact puts a smile on your heart. Well, y'all, that's how I feel about our guest today. Natasha McNeil is that person to me. She has seen me at my most vulnerable when I'm so 
held ransom by fear of failure on a project or overwhelmed with professional frustration trying to advocate for a task or a policy. And she's seen me at my best, sipping wine and giggling in my living room with children, dogs, and joyful, complete, and total chaos running around. And for some reason, this woman loves me through it all. And trust me when I say that we love deep in our village. Our one character trait that stands out the first time that you meet Natasha is that she has an excellent moral compass that points to true north. And she will advocate with conviction, humility, laughter, and grace when she sees an injustice, both personally and professionally. And all that takes bravery. And that's what brings us to today. The heartfelt desire to clear the muddy waters on roles and responsibilities versus licensed scope of practices for various members of the IFSP team. So a word of caution. As we traverse this topic, let us place our egos aside and open yourself to the words being spoken today. Because I got to be honest, Natasha and I got some soapboxes. All right, Natasha, I did the disclaimer, so now we can behave. (laughs) Are you ready to roll? I am ready. (laughs) Honestly, how many many years have we complained about this topic before I was like, we're doing this, and you finally said yes? I know for at least a solid two, because that's how long I've been doing home health, early intervention, Uh but Uh I've been practicing now at six years, so probably all six. Because I've always worked in (laughs) EI with that population. So I'm sure it's been probably that long. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. Okay. All right. So I'd love love to get the backstory on all the peoples. We can kind of like frame this. So tell us your walk. How did you become an SLP? Fill us in, darling. Okay. So I am a very rare bird in the fact that I have known what I wanted to do when I grow up since I was super little. So I literally had like one career change in my head. So I always knew I wanted to work with kids with special needs since I was in kindergarten. I would always like be that person that would go and like want to get the kids off of the bus and push them in their wheelchair and get them in their classroom and play with them in the morning while other kids were doing it for like a free piece of candy. I was doing it because I just loved those kids and wanted to be around them. So growing up, I was like, I'm going to be a special education teacher. That's what I want to do. Well, when I was in the seventh grade, a family friend of ours had a set of twins. The youngest twin had a seizure and his speech and language skills just disappeared. And he had a home health EI SLP that came in and did therapy with him. And I happened to be there one day and just kind of was super interested in it. And I just started playing around with him when I would babysit or if we would all be together. And I was one of the only people he would actually talk to. And in that moment, as like an 11-year-old, 12-year-old, however old you are in the seventh grade, I knew, okay, this is what I want to do. I want to be a speech therapist. Like I want to help kids talk. Fast forward, went to Winthrop. I double majored in speech and special education because I knew that the area that I would want to serve would be kids with complex special needs. That's just who I've always been drawn to. 
I taught special ed for about two and a half years. And then I was fortunate enough to get a position as a as an SLPA. So as an assistant at a private practice clinic where I did my very first internship in grad school through the University of South Carolina. And then I want to say it was 2016, maybe at a Skisha conference that it was the year that they wanted us to like say which class we were going to go to so they would have enough seats. Mm -hmm. Well, I was supposed to go to an AAC class, but apparently people did not follow directions because there were not enough seats because there were people sitting out in like the lobby of like the conference space. And I was like, there's no way, like I'm not sitting on the floor. I can't hear that. So the class next door, there was plenty of seats available. And I was like, okay, cool. I'll just go to that. Well, it was a class by you and you were teaching about infantile seizures. Oh my God. That was my first lecture at Skisha. Oh yeah. So dude, I threw up before that. I was so nervous. I'm sorry. You just brought back all my speaker anxiety. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, you did amazing because after I sat through that class, I came up as like a participant and I was the one that had to pretend I had seizures while a classmate of mine was like trying to give me water. Yeah. (laughs) While I was having my, you know, my infantile spasm. And at the end of that, I was like, this is the area of speech pathology that I'm doing. I am meant to be a feeding therapist. So that's how I found the world of pediatric feeding disorders was through you and through your, apparently your very first class at Skisha, which you did amazing because it completely changed the trajectory of where I wanted to go as a speech path. Before that, I was like, I'm going to be in the schools because I loved being a teacher. I loved being in that community. And I was like, that's where I'm going to serve my students. And then I went to your class and I was like, nope. PFD a thousand and one percent. That's where I need to be. That's so crazy. And I've been doing that for, I mean, like I said, I'm going into my sixth year of practice. So I am in no way, shape, or form an expert or a specialist or anything under the sun in that sense. I am just super passionate about my families and my kiddos. They, I mean, as soon as I get a patient on my schedule, like that's my family, that's my kid, and I'm super protective of them. And I know, I mean, we've had conversations in the past and just about all the things, and I'm super protective of it. So that's why I'm just really passionate about making sure everyone that comes in contact with them is doing what's best for them, not what's best for that professional or that person. Yes. Thank you. Y'all, most of our conversation, oh my gosh, I wouldn't say most of our, we have so many different topics that we talk about. <laughs> this evening we were talking about Bear turning his face into a cookie face as he had, he was licking his knockoff Oreos because we buy the healthier version, if that's such a thing. And he was licking them and making them stick to his face. And that's when I called Natasha. <laughs> so hey. like, 
our conversations, fairy man. <laughs> he is just exploring that food like we would want to see any of our kiddos do. So it's fine. Oh my god! You take what you do all day and bring it home, and your kids are great eaters. So it's fine. <laughs> that's that's. <laughs> it took a minute to get there, there, but there we are. But yes, but one of the things that we circle back around to, and this is something that. For a while, I thought, I thought this is just unique to South Carolina. It's the fact that we have non-licensed members on our IFSB teams. They're giving recommendations that are outside of their roles and responsibilities and enter into our professional scope of practices. And that's scope of practice encroachment. If you had a music therapist that was giving recommendations on pediatric feeding and swallowing, you would report them. Bad things would happen to them from a professional license or certification perspective because that's not within their scope of practice. And I will say this, I think there's a time and a place for that position as like art therapy or like an adjunct therapy, but not within our limited units. And actually Radford University in Virginia actually has a great working relationship between their music therapists and their SLPs. And that's been on my to-do list to get that interview booked. But yeah, I know, right? That'd be cool. <laughs> that's amazing. We have that scope of practice encouragement issue in our state. But for real, we have really, really struggled with early interventionists giving feeding and swallowing difficulties. And as you stated right before we, well, go ahead and say what happens if that happens. I will allow you the pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. So as I was telling Michelle, and Michelle's heard me say this a thousand times, I've had the pleasure of taking a student from Michelle's school this past semester, and she was amazing. Hi, Kylie. I love you. I know you're listening. Kylie, hi. You're going to get a CF position and you're going to be wonderful. But (laughs) sweet Kylie got to hear my spiel and any graduate student, undergraduate student that has had the pleasure of either being in the clinic setting with me or has been able to do a ride along with me and even other professionals that are new to people who have PFDs. I tell them every single time, and I don't mean this to come off harsh. I don't mean it to come off in a negative way, but the area of PFD and feeding treatment, that is the one area in our profession that we can cause serious harm and life-threatening events. Mm -hmm. It's not just like, oh, I told them how to produce their R incorrectly and now it's a retrograde versus the not retrograde. I don't do articulation therapy, so I was probably really literally bad don't have a clue what you're talking about. <laughs> I took an R class one time because I really wanted to understand it because I had a kid on my caseload when I used to work at the hospital, and that's I kind of that's all I got. I'm really sorry to everyone who does bomb articulation therapy, but that's why I don't do it because clearly I don't understand. <laughs> but I gave a kid a lisp, or I did this, okay, but. If I give a child thin liquids when they are not ready for thin liquids because that's just something I felt in my soul was the right thing to do at that moment, that child could get aspiration pneumonia. That child could end up in the hospital. If that child already has a ton of other comorbidities and complexities, that could kill that child. And that is on me. That is on my license. So I tell every single student, every single person that comes in contact with my kids, 
that story and I tell them like you can cause more harm than good. If you don't know what you are doing, please just admit to that. There's nothing wrong with saying you don't know. And I'm a big proponent of that. I pray that every single family that has ever come in contact with me that I've ever had the pleasure of doing therapy with would tell you that. They would tell you, Natasha didn't know about auditory verbal therapy. I have a current patient that we're getting that assessed for. I don't know about that. I don't know how to help this family with their child's complex hearing loss. So I'm referring them to the therapist who does because that is what is right. That is what is ethical. I love this family to death. Would I keep this kid until she turned 18 in a heartbeat because they're amazing, but, but that's not appropriate. I don't know how to help that child. And something that I tell every family during our intake is if at any point in time you feel like I am not the right therapist for your family, if you feel like I'm not the right therapist for your child, you tell me. I am not offended. I am not going to be hurt. We are going to find you the right person. Because at the end of the day, I don't care if I'm like, oh, I graduated 17 kids last year. Woohoo, that was me. No, what I care about is the fact that the family and the child got the help and the support that they need. I'm very open about my areas of limitation in the world of our profession because we cannot be a hundred percent knowledgeable in every aspect of our profession. It's just not possible. I know about pediatric feeding disorders. I had a parent ask me the other day, do you also work with adults? Hard pass. No, I don't. I don't know anything about adult swallowing. I know about pediatric swallowing and I could piecemeal a couple of things that could possibly translate to an adult, but I don't know because I haven't taken the time to learn that information because that's not my area of focus. Y'all, that's in our code of ethics. What she's describing, we are ethically bound to practice within our scope. And even though the whole field of speech pathology is our scope, it is, but it's not. Right. When you start focusing in a specific subpopulation, that focus area becomes your, your scope. And for a non-licensed professional, such as the early interventionist or service coordinator, to give recommendations, and it, albeit some of them are well-meaning because they just don't know any better. They know they don't know that they're not allowed to, and some of them are just out of the kindness of their heart trying to help, but they need to be taught up front that they can't talk about that. This is the one aspect of our job that if we do it wrong, we could kill a kid or harm them, and likewise for them. So, Absolutely. Absolutely. Whole conversation. Everything has to be framed from that. Now, if the early intervention is, happens to be the speech language pathologist, such as they are in other, or I'm sorry, not the early intervention, the service coordinator happens yeah. to be the speech language pathologist, that's a different thing. But if they're not a licensed SLP, they can't. Wait, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> rabbit hole. There we go. That's, that's our soapbox. Okay. Can you talk to us? What is the role of the early interventionist and service coordinator on an EI program? Absolutely. So for some people, like just in case you're not a thousand percent aware of like what is early intervention, two things that I saw when I was just kind of preparing for our talk, I saw on the CDC website that 
early intervention is a term used to describe the services and supports that are available to babies, young children with developmental delays and disabilities. And then the other thing from ASHA was that families and professionals, including audiologists, SLPs, are part of an, an early intervention team. So the biggest thing there is knowing their services. We are a team. It's not a single service. It's not a single person. Like We should be an interprofessional network for these families. And sometimes I feel like maybe people forget that. I know that it's hard not to feel like you're in, on an island, but we just have to remember we are a whole team. And it's interesting that you kind of, you had mentioned that in some states, the way that their early intervention program is run, one particular service provider, whether it's the SLP, the OT, the PT, whoever might be in there, they might be that like number one person. And that's kind of who everything goes through. But I thought it was super interesting. I did just a really small Facebook poll on the early intervention speech language pathologist group and just asked them what people called these providers. So in the state of South Carolina, we typically refer to our people as early interventionists or EIs. And so that'll probably be what you hear me and Michelle use most frequently because in our state, that's what we call them. They do also provide service coordination, but nine times out of 10, the people that we work with on our teams, they use the term early interventionist. And about 27 states responded back to me And what it looked like is that, so obviously South Carolina, they were early interventionists. Some places call them case managers. Some places they were family service coordinators. Some are called intervention specialists. So even across our country, their name isn't even consistent, the same. Yeah, it's not consistent. So like if you tell somebody, oh, you're getting a speech language pathologist, regardless if you're in South Carolina, you're in California. That's our title. That's our role. Same thing with like physical therapy, all of that. So it's just interesting to me that it's not a consistent thing around all of it. So when we look at it and we're trying to figure out, okay, so this individual, regardless of what you call them in your state, what is their role? And like I mentioned earlier, I've been doing home health early intervention for about two years now. So I'm still learning. I'm still learning a lot. And when I was trying to get more on the nitty gritty of this subject, I was privy to read a wonderful book that hopefully is coming out for publication. I think it should be out soon. (laughs) Shameless plug as Michelle's laughing because she knows, but it's Michelle's actually her book that she's worked on forever. It's called Chasing the Swallow in case you guys haven't heard about it. Um, But... And I had asked her, I was like, can I go ahead and quote this? Like, I'm not sure if it's going to be officially out before we have this talk. But I told her it's a pure goldmine of information, y'all. And you just need to have it. It literally is like the perfect pocket sized book. Like, I know we always have like the pocket handbook for dysphagia or for voice disorders. This is going to be your pocket book for all things interprofessional practice. And what do these people do? So in this book, she has an entire section on service coordinators, early interventions. What is their job? So some of the big key things that that individual is responsible for is working on the IFSP or the individual family service plan. And that has to be created with an, a, within a certain amount of time. And Michelle, you probably know like the nitty gritty of those time frames better than I do. 
I think it's within the first 65 days of referral. If they're accepted and approved, they have to have their initial eval completed. And it's like a developmental eval going through the five domains. So gross motor, fine motor, self-help skills, language, and cognition. But that's not unique just to the early intervention service coordinator. A licensed SLP can also give that assessment. And we actually specifically have a CPT code for it. It's a developmental assessment. I can't remember the CPT code off the top of my head, but you'll find it on the ASHA Super Bill. So at our university, we were steeping the students in best practice. So when we get a referral and the child falls within the early intervention realm, they have that completed. The variations are dial, lap D, and of course, Johnny on the spot, I can't remember the name of our assessment. And I had every single student do one this semester and graded it. And I cannot remember, but it will come to me. That's okay. They're all screaming the answer in the car right now. Yes, yes, they are. And they're, they're probably also screaming that it took me as long as it did to grade the bloody thing. It's a beast. But it goes through and it doesn't tell you, it gives you a standardized score within it, but it tells you, yes, there's a delay present. The trick is in that assessment, it doesn't tell you the type of language disorder that the child has, which is why you have to follow back up with a specific language assessment as administered by the licensed professional, i.e. the SLP. So the early interventionist service coordinator completes the assessment, says, hey, this child red flagged for this, Now they need to go to the SLP to see if, in fact, it is a disorder or the severity of the delay and do they warrant services. And that's when we roll in with like the Rosetti or whatever it is we want. Because again, specificity, sensitivity, validity of PLS-5 is there's a position statement on it. For the people in the back, go check out the position statement on it. Don't. I highly advise if that is your test of trade, pursue a different assessment. Also, I didn't, I mean, I kind of like spit a little in the microphone, so sorry. It's okay. It's okay. You get real passionate about that, that creepy purple bear. Haunting you in your dreams. Haunting you in your dreams. No, the best was when they did that with bear and they were like, give the bear a drink and bear drank from the plastic cup. And I was like, oh God, don't say that because he's, we call him bear sorry right you're like hold on that's not wrong thank you he understood your direction give him that point (laughs) yes continue sorry well and even just to that point that you were saying michelle i had a family i was seeing baby sister adorable adorable little baby with some heart things and i was seeing her for feeding and mom had concerns with big brother and his speech and language development. And I could tell right off the bat, mm-hmm, something's going on. Sure. Like just observationally. And I told mom, like little sister's already through baby net, which is our early intervention system here in South Carolina. I said, go ahead. And I talked with little sister's early interventionist about getting brother support. They helped her. Well, when mom had the phone intake with baby net, they said, oh, he doesn't qualify. He's fine. <sighs> So then I had, right, big sigh, because then mom texted me. She's like, Natasha, I don't understand. And I said, I don't understand either. But from my knowledge and what I explained to her is the person on the other end of the phone is not necessarily a speech language pathologist. They're going to ask you questions that are written on a piece of paper. They're going to circle your yes, no response, and then they're going to tally it up. So then mom had to pay out of pocket. and And this family was very fortunate that they were able to do that and pay out of pocket to get this private evaluation done by me 
And then I type up my report saying, yes, in fact, he does qualify. We send it all to BabyNet and they're like, oh, yeah, he does. Okay, he's now in the system. So that can be frustrating to families because some of our families cannot afford to do that private evaluation. They're not cheap, you know, and... I mean, it's the name of the game. It is what it is. Like we have to be paid for our services and there's nothing shameful or wrong for you wanting to be paid for your time and your services. But it's also how do we better support our early interventionist system to be prepared to actually ask the right questions and get the information they need. So yes, tangent on that as well. (laughs) Yeah, wait. And on that note, In the state of South Carolina, we have an overarching early intervention system called BabyNet. When you go to different states, they call it different things. In North Carolina, it's called child... CDSA. Yes, yes. Child Development Service Agency, I think. I did a little bit of CDSA home health for like six months. So Yes. One of my dear friends, Valerie, she's CDSA intake eval. Actually, just both of you. Yes, she's amazing. And she sends me pictures of her kitty cats periodically, and it brings my heart immense joy. (laughs) But in Virginia, they have it basically split up according to regions. So when I first worked as an SLPA, SLT in the Virginia public schools, I would get referrals from the rural infant service program, which is what it was on like the Gloucester Matthews Middle Peninsula area because it was, I mean, it was rural, we're in the sticks. So it wasn't an overarching state program. It was divided into different subsections. So that's another added layer within this big picture. And one thing I do, I will put a call to action to all of you out there listening. IDEA Part C is the legal framework for early intervention. However, just like with IDEA Part B, the public schools for 3 to 21, feeding is not technically mandated, but technically not mandated. All the lawsuits, and thank you to the goddess that is Emily Homer, we're now getting feeding into the schools, and you're starting to see PFD address there, and there's policy changes going on. That's the same that happens within the state early intervention. Just like Natasha was saying, they asked those questions and the kid didn't qualify. Those questions that they're asking just to see if they qualify for like the initial eval, your state association can advocate to have those questions change to improve the specificity, sensitivity, and validity of what questions are being asked so that they can catch the patients that need to be caught. So don't think I mean, if it's broken, well, then fix it. You have the power to do that. So Absolutely. No. Perfect soapbox. Yeah. Perfect soapbox. (laughs) (laughs) Done. 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 Okay. Back to it. EI service coordinator. Done. (laughs) Yeah. So some of the other things that they're responsible for is to hold like change review meetings if things are getting added or taken off of the child's plan. The plan itself is supposed to be reviewed every six months. We should be a part of these meetings. Please advocate to be a part of these meetings. Nine times out of 10, I'm not invited to these meetings. Yes, which is illegal. We are supposed to be, every member of the IFSP team is supposed to be notified of the meeting and invited to the meeting. Yep, sorry. No, it's fine. It's fine. My sentiments exactly. Mm -hmm. I have some amazing EIs that I work with who 
will invite me to the meetings who, if for some reason I can't be at that meeting at that specific time because I am with another patient, they get my input. They get my information. We have long conversations about like what that patient is doing. And so I feel confident that they're not making things up. I have other EIs who I have either never seen in person, which at this point in time, because of COVID, that's a thing. But I've also never spoken to on the phone. I've never seen an email. I've only just seen their name on our EMR system. And so that's challenging because then EIs help develop goals with the families. And then if you go and look at their goals, then you can see things like, oh, this child is going to use two to three word phrases because that is what they know is developmentally appropriate for that child's age. But because they are not a skilled SLP, they don't realize that this child isn't even producing early developing sounds, no vowels, no animal noises. And they just say, oh, well, this is what they should be doing because this is their age, not this is what they should be doing because of their skill. So that is why if you just advocate, advocate that you are a part of those meetings. And if you read those goals and you know that they are inappropriate, you need to reach out and you need to say something because these are legal binding documents. Yes. So what I would tell families when I was in the school and they were like, well, this teacher isn't following what they need to based on the IEP. And then I would tell the parents, this is a legal binding contract. The teacher was in the meeting. They knew that's what we all signed off on. So just because things are electronic and you feel like you weren't there, like your name and your license is associated with these treatment plans. So if there's something on there, speech and language feeding related that you know is inappropriate, you need to say something and you need to get it fixed and changed. And then you need to educate that individual on why it's inappropriate and why they shouldn't be making up those types of goals. Now, I completely understand because I've been trying to learn a lot more from my EI counterparts just about their jobs and stuff. And I understand that they have to produce goals based off of like what family wants. So if family wants them to eat a particular food or eat at the table or whatever, we need to also be able to teach and educate them on how to make that appropriate. Like just baseline goal. Like if a kiddo is screaming and running away from the table, but family wants him to be at the table and eating a meal, then we should be able to educate our EIs and say, okay, in that instance, the big goal is not to be able to get him to the table. A goal in that sense would be, can he stand next to the table or can he bring plates to the table and deliver? So that's an education piece that we need to help with because as far as I know, I and your state may be rocking the training game and doing all of the things, but I don't know of any state. There is one, and I want to say it might be Ohio. It might not be Ohio, but someone has a training program specifically for their early interventionists. I wrote it down somewhere, and now it's gone. Florida. Florida? Is it? I do know Florida has a really good, everybody go check it out. The Florida Routines-Based Intervention, FGRBI, I think is the website. Dr. Juliana Woods, who is like the godmother of early intervention for SLPs. And it's all about parent coaching and our role and responsibility within parent coaching. And she's got super quick, catchy, not onomatopoeias, but like the initials to go with the thing that you're supposed to remember. I just remember it's super like setting the stage. There's different pieces to it, but yep, that's one of them. And it's a killer program. So yes, yes, yes. Sorry. Continue. 
oh my gosh, no, you're fine. That's perfect. So other things that they can do, like we talked about holding those annual meetings with all team members, as you heard from me and Michelle, we typically don't know that these are actually happening, but then they also coordinate services. They should coordinate transition services when our kiddos are about to be three and they're aging out of EI services and going into the school system. They can assist families in navigating insurance. And then most importantly, is that they're helping families identify and receive the appropriate supports from within the community that are available. So kind of what does that look like? So again, here in South Carolina, we have that one individual, They're called, we call them EIs or early interventionists, and they kind of wear two different hats and they kind of do both things. So one person can technically, I guess, for lack of a better term, like bill under both hats. Like I'm going to bill if I do service coordination, which is what it sounds like. You're going to follow up with service providers, connect families to services. They're going to make sure families are going to their medical appointments or making sure that they're getting those things that they need. Does a family need, you know, transportation services if for some reason there aren't services available to come to their home? That's kind of what they're going to navigate. Now, our early interventionists in South Carolina, and I can't speak to what people do in other states, some of our EIs will, during their visits, will provide like physical manipulation. They might do some stretching for a kid who has torticollis. They might be working on... That's occupational therapy and physical therapy licensed Mm -hmm. scope of practice. You would be right. They might do like sensory stuff like brushing. Again, like you would say OT. They might be trying to work on early language development. They might be trying to implement feeding strategies. Or you have EIs who stay within their scope of practice and work on developmentally appropriate tasks. So they might coach the family, and that's what they should be doing. Coach the family and asking them, how did this week look? Okay, what have you been doing with your therapist this week? Show me. You show me what the physical therapist wanted you to do. Oh, show me what your speech therapist wanted you to do with. And they're asking the caregiver that, which is carry over. And also while they're doing that, prior to that event having occurred, they should have reached out to the licensed professional to seek to understand from that individual so they can reaffirm or recommend a follow-up. Yes. So you have those extremes. And when I had asked a bunch of our EI SLPs out in the community, just how they felt about things, majority of people felt like Everyone that they worked with stayed within their their lanes. No one felt like they were being stepped on or stepped over. But enough SLPs felt like other people, mainly that early interventionist individual, was stepping on their toes or coming over into the lane of speech and language, and they just weren't sure. So in South Carolina, in order to be an early interventionist, you have to have a bachelor's degree in one out of 22 areas. 22 different areas in a bachelor's degree. It could be a licensed marriage and family therapist, could be something in education, could be social work. And you have to have at least one year of experience in the field of early education or one year of working with infants and toddlers or one year of working with kids birth to five who have disabilities. And like Michelle says in her book, the most common standard is to have that bachelor's degree and it is preferred in education. But all of that to say You could be working with an early interventionist whose degree was in social work and for 20 years, they were an adult-based social worker who supported drug addicts or supported a whole host of other things, but then decided, 
that's not for me, I'm over it, went and spent one year as an assistant in a daycare room. And now people are considering them and giving them the title of being a developmental specialist or developmental expert. And if you've been around this podcast for any short amount of time, you will know that the word specialist and expert get under Michelle and Aaron's skin, nothing else, unless you have the appropriate degree, which I hope that when I <laughs> present myself, I, I never say that I'm a specialist or I'm an expert. I tell people, this is my area of focus. This is my area of interest. I'm not an expert in anything because I don't have the knowledge to be an expert. And I know that. So these individuals who are getting these roles, we are telling them, you are the specialist, you are the expert, but they don't actually have the knowledge base to be the specialist, to be that expert. Unless they actually have pursued a degree in early childhood education. I will caveat that because I do know one, one of my girlfriends, Diane Postman up in Virginia, Diane, hi, love you. She was my first mentor, (laughs) but she has two bachelors, a master's degree, and is literally authoring part of the early intervention protocol for Virginia, like the actual manuals. And like, but that is the equivalent of us being like a BCSS. Right. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. But otherwise you're 110% correct. It's not as, yes. Continue. Sorry. Yeah. Oh my gosh. No, (laughs) I know it's hard. My hands because I'm so frustrated. (laughs) I know. I get like, the angry sweats. It's so embarrassing. If I get super frustrated, like everyone knows that I work with, like if I start tugging up my shirt, I'm like, I can't handle it. Like I'm just I'm getting mad. And it's, this is how it's, this is how it's permeating. So fun, embarrassing fact about me. There you go. Angry sweat. I love it. How did I not know that? <laughs> I don't know. It, it's super embarrassing. And then now I felt the need to share with like, I don't know, your millions of listeners that I get angry sweats. It's fine. All right, I get nervous poos, so we're good. It's okay. Well, I feel like that's a given for anybody. And if you say you don't poo, you are not a real human being. And if you don't talk about poo at least 400 times in one day, you do you really treat feeding? I don't know. I don't know if you do. <laughs> that's awesome alas but yeah so like michelle said i do have some amazing eis who do have that early childhood education and i trust them wholeheartedly Mm -hmm. with a lot more things than i do with people that i'm like "Mm, no Mm -hmm. i don't feel like you have this but at the same time too the level of work and i tell my eis all the time like i don't know how you stay afloat with the amount of paperwork and the amount of kids and all this so we do notice and I don't know if it's the same in your area in Columbia, but a high turnover rate with some of these individuals. So sometimes some of our agencies are just like, well, we need a body. We need somebody that can do it. And they take who they can get. But again, it goes back to that lack of education piece because there's no governing body over them. Like we have ASHA. OT has AOTA, I think, or AOTA. I'm not sure if you guys like put it all together super fancy like we do. But there's those governing bodies that like tell us, this is right. This is wrong. This is what you can do. This is what you can't do. But there's not that. So in South Carolina as well, we, oh, I just found my notes. Illinois has an early intervention training program. So Mm -hmm. thanks, Illinois. Keep up the good work. But so in South Carolina, in like my area alone, I think there's like seven or eight at least different early intervention companies that baby net literally sends a list to families and says, here you go, pick who you want to see. And families 
pick a company off of a piece of paper or they pick a company based off of like a friend who used that agency. So training for these individuals varies from agency to agency based off of how that agency believes and interprets the role of an early interventionist and what IDEA Part C means to them. So if they think that it means that the early interventionist is going to go into the home and you're going to sit at a table and that child is going to sit at that table for an hour, then that's how every single one of their early interventionists gets trained. So then Mm -hmm. when we come into the home and we're like, let's just do the things, I'm basically just going to follow you guys around as you have your regular activities of daily living then they get really thrown by that. If we come in without a bag of toys, which is best practice, and the early interventionist has been bringing their cute little monogrammed embroidered bag with them. Sorry, it's the South. Everybody (laughs) monograms everything. And that that cracks me up. I'm like, why do we need monogrammed pillowcases? Like, is that... (laughs) I don't understand why. Are you going to forget your initials when you wake up? That's... My yeah. rain jacket has dual monograms, one on the front breast pocket, one on the hood, just in case, like just in case, like you don't know who I am. It's in two places on the same, same article of clothing. It's okay. Love it. Love it. Embrace no. it. Embrace it. So all of this, why does this matter to us as speech paths? You're like, okay, great. That's these people. So these individuals are really getting our family set up. They're getting them going. They're the ones, I mean, if you tick off the wrong EI, like you're not going to get referrals anymore. Honestly, I never have that issue. I'm not that type of person that's like, oh, I'm going to save face or I'm not going to say X, Y, and Z. I am inundated, which I'm very grateful to have a wait list of patients that want to see me. So if I make one individual mad because I call them out on what they're doing is wrong and they don't want to send me patients anymore, that's fine. It's it's not going to hurt my feelings. And one thing that I have found often, early interventionists don't realize that we as a licensed professional must have access to the medical records in order to develop a competent plan of care. And sometimes even in order to complete a thorough evaluation. And that's because they're simply not trained to know the medical piece that we know. So when we ask them to reach out to the physician to obtain those records, which is part of their role and responsibility as a service coordinator, that's they can get overwhelmed there because especially with their ones that have not had that level of training, they don't know how to reach out to the physician. And also it can throw the early interventionist a curveball when they have lined up one SLP, but yet the physician has their preferred SLP because they recognize that one SLP, like person A does not have the focus level, does not focus in on PFD. So the physician pediatrician makes the script happen directly to person B. Well, that can throw off the early interventionist because they've already lined up one SLP, but ultimately it's the physician's script and who they would prefer. I mean, family choice, absolutely. But that also has to be respected. Sorry. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's kind of like their big thing. Okay. So what do they do while they're there? I know that in South Carolina, we used to be able to co-treat with our EI counterparts. And that was amazing because I was able to show and coach not only the family, but also the early interventionists. Like, this is what it looks like when I'm doing here. Unfortunately, that has kind of been taken away from us. We just aren't able to do it because they don't want us to bill for it because you know how everything gets to be money related. And 
soapbox for another day. But that's actually not allowed to happen. And legally, they are required to allow us to train the service coordinators, which is again, a soapbox for another day. But I'll be quiet and behave now. Continue. (laughs) (laughs) So those EIs, at least here in South Carolina, they go out an hour a week, at least minimum. They're there for 60 minutes. So if we're sending in these individuals who have had no training, have no idea what's going on, then they're there for 60 minutes doing things that we in turn have to go in and correct. And there's been countless times. One of the things that can be super frustrating is like, I've gotten there. I finally got the referral. And then I get in there and I tell mom and dad like, hey, my name's Natasha. I'm a pediatric speech path. This is what I'm doing. So I'm here. And they go, oh, I thought we already had a speech therapist. That's mm-hmm. what I thought, who I thought was coming and doing therapy once a week for 60 minutes. And then now I have to go, no, no, no. That is so-and-so to you. So that's another thing. Like while they're there, they may not always be portraying themselves correctly. They're not portraying themselves as like, I'm here as your service coordinator. This is my role as that. Or I'm here as this interventionist and this is what my job is because they don't get that training. And the agencies that train them may say like, you go in and you're a subject matter expert for everything, which we've already said. If I can't be a subject matter expert in everything in just the world of speech language pathology, there's no way that we can expect one individual to be a subject matter expert on all things hearing, OT, PT, speech, growth, mm-hmm. feeding. We just can't. It's not It's not feasible. And it's not okay for these companies to expect one person to know all of this. But EIs are so, so important to us because they're kind of our first line of defense. Because in South Carolina, we don't go out as a team to evaluate We're not a whole herd of people going to one person's house doing all of the things. It's one person. In North Carolina, they do have more of a team approach when they go out to assess. And now it's not always a speech path that goes out, but there's somebody there. There's multiple people usually when they're doing their assessment. So there's more eyes, which is great. But since they are a first line link, we need them to be equipped with simple, basic knowledge and understanding of things so they can say, aha, this is a red flag or, ooh, I need to get you to so-and-so because you're telling me X, Y, and Z. Or these are the questions that I really need to ask. Yes, I need to follow step-by-step, do my protocol, ask these things, but I also know that I need to ask this because something that my EIs are doing now, which I'm so grateful for, is if there's a child with a speech and language concern, immediately they're starting to ask, well, when was the last time they got their hearing screened? was the last time when they were a newborn and if families are like, oh yeah, we just did it in the hospital. Not, they're like, okay, because you're telling me they have speech and language concerns, I'm going to go ahead and get you set up with our local audiologist. And I use the same audiology team all the time and they're two amazing women and I love them. So my ears, because they know that's what I do. I've been with them long enough and I tell them my process. So they already know like, If I have a kid who has a language delay, I'm going to send them to get their hearing screened to rule something out to make sure that that's not what's causing things. So they're starting to ask those questions. But that's because I've taken the time to talk to them about it, to explain to them why it's important. And they can also help us by following through with that home exercise program. Because 
I mean, I'm a mom of a typically developing 16 month old little girl and she's exhausting and I love her and she's an amazing human being. (laughs) But if I had, she had slight torticollis, she had to have a helmet. I did not follow helmet protocol as well as I should have. And I'm a therapist. So oopsie, my bad. Uh, It is what it is. But like I had some, like we did some physical therapy with her. And if somebody wasn't like checking in on me, and that was when she was an infant. She just laid on the ground, didn't go anywhere. It's hard to remember. Like we all have moving pieces. So the fact that we can encourage our EIs when they go once a week, that's an additional hour that they can support families in doing our home exercise programs. Not what they want to do. Not what the EI is like, oh, this is my exciting adventure today. No, your SLP, your PT. We asked families to do this. So when you go in and ask them, what are you supposed to be working on? What did you do this week? Now you can do that activity with families. You coach them. The families are leading it. That's what we want to see in early intervention. We don't want to be the ones doing it because we don't live there. So if we can empower them to follow our home exercise programs, then we know, okay, you got it an hour with me and an hour with somebody else. So you've got a minimum of at least two hours worth of practice. And sometimes that's the best that these families can give us. And that's amazing. And we need to like applaud them and say, thank you so much. Yes. That's, I mean, bearhead therapy. And I went through this for years as an early intervention SLP. And then on the flip side, as a parent, navigating the early intervention system was absolutely because it was a lot of caregiver coaching that the EIs are doing with respect to language and with respect to feeding. So for Bear, the EI Brants, we love Brants. Brants would go into the church preschool because, I mean, we were doing the things at home for the most part, also helmet, ears, the whole nine yards. And she would follow up with the church daycare workers. How's he working on asking for this? And she knew the strategies, bless Dr. Angela and Dr. Regina Lemon worked with him as well over at Columbia College. And she would ask about how the strategies were going, if they had any questions they wanted to get relayed back and forth. And then for me, with respect to the language development, it was, you know, her asking, did you, Michelle, I know you, did you remember to follow up on this phone call with this specialist and, and checking in also on how is the parent's self-care doing? Because One amazing resource that the early interventionists and service coordinators do is they look at the Maslow's hierarchy of need that's pyramid scale, right? And they go through and say, hey, if this family's in a point of crisis, do they need food? Do they need shelter? Do they need counseling? How do I help? And they can make the referrals for those things. Not once did the brands actually do therapy. She can't. That's out of her scope because she doesn't have a scope. She's a non-licensed individual, but she knew her roles and responsibilities helped navigate the caregivers, whether they be the church daycares ladies who were (laughs) goddesses or (laughs) this nervous basket case of a mother on my end who was feeling like all these things were my fault because I had a terrible uterus. So, Sometimes I want it back when I smell a new baby. And then I'm like, no, no, no. It tried to kill me. It's good. <laughs> it can stay okay, where but it is. What? <laughs> yeah, stay where it is in whatever medical dumpster <laughs> they kept it in and or studied it. Like, hmm. <laughs> so, okay. Let's go slightly past our one hour mark. So maybe like 105 because we won't otherwise get it all in. But what about the rule for the EI 
for feeding and swallowing development. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? What is their role there? I sure can. And this is one that's going to be real short and sweet and simple. And you already heard my (laughs) soapbox on just please don't do it. If you're a nearly interventionist, just don't touch the tiny human. That's it's, I mean, the nicest way I can do it. Just please don't touch them. The biggest thing, their role is to refer, to refer, to refer, and to refer to an individual who actually has training in feeding disorders. And I'm not saying, oh, they took a class in grad school. There have been countless times because I'm, I am a young professional. I've been doing this for six years. I have been doing feeding and swallowing for this the entire time. Now, when I was an assistant, like my hands are tied, can't do a lot of things. You're an assistant. You don't have that. You don't have the skills. It's not ethical for me to treat. As I got my CF, as I got my C's, like my area grew, but I had to learn. And I did all that. I, I have, this makes it sound like a huge nerd and it is what it is. I have three ACE awards through ASHA and all my continuing ed is in early intervention. It's in feeding and swallowing because those are the areas that I want to know and I want to grow in. So yes, I have the knowledge base because I've put in the time. Now I've been told countless times that, well, we all can be feeding therapists, Natasha, because we all took a class. I'm sorry. I don't know about you. In grad school, I had like a Maymester of pediatric feeding. One Maymester. It was like, what, six weeks if I'm lucky? <laughs> I got a night. I got a night. That was it. Well, see, I mean, yeah. And then you would have been prepared day one. And that's mm-hmm. frustrating for me. Like when I look at us as professionals, because Again, why? Why are you getting upset over the fact that you don't have a skill set in an area? There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with saying, well, I don't know. So that's the biggest thing in providing that education to our EIs to know the questions to ask that speech language pathologist to make sure that they really are skilled for the kid. Because a feeding therapist who works predominantly with sensory-based feeding may not have the skill set to work with your infant patient who is a NICU grad who has a trach, who has an ostomy, who has a G-tube. They are vastly different feeders. It's vastly different knowledge bases. So we as professionals need to educate our EIs on what to ask them, but also as professionals, we need to know, yes, I can do that, or yeah, no, I'm out. I'm out. I do that all the time. I have a kid that got a really cool AAC device. I like it. I think it's great. I can write a kick butt grant and information so that way they say, yeah, we'll pay for it and we'll get it for you. After that, I'm out because I don't have the skill set to to take him further where he needs it. So that's one of the biggest things. Soapbox, I know I got off on a tangent, but okay. please just know your limits. Please know that like you can't do everything and that's okay. So teach them how to refer and how to refer to the appropriate people. And one of the things that this is like a huge goal of mine for this year, and I can't believe the years are halfway over, but it's on its way is to encourage the use of like the feeding matters, infant and child feeding questionnaire with these families to encourage them. This is the questions you need to ask. If a family has an inkling of a concern, then I want you to pull your phone out because I know nine times out of 10, your company pays for your cell phone. So take that out, use their internet and fill out this questionnaire with them and get that information. Help support these families with they have feeding concerns and not be like, oh, okay, well, we will watch it. Again, that's not your scope of practice to even have have an opinion. And I know it sounds really harsh, but you, you don't have an opinion in this matter. If a family has a feeding concern, then we want them to use this questionnaire so that way they can determine, okay, what are our next steps? What do we need to do? 
And that's basically where it ends. Like that is it. I want you to refer. I want you to use this questionnaire to support and see if we have some things going on. And then I want you to just focus on other things that are not feeding. Because like I said, this is a very serious area. And if I feel comfortable, if I have a kiddo that I've been working with and we're doing floor picnics, if we're doing some sensory play with the food after I have collaborated with the OT, I don't make sensory-based decisions for any of my patients because that's not my job. That's not my scope of practice. So if my kids are doing anything sensory related to feeding, it's been run past their occupational therapist to make sure it's a good fit. If we're painting with broccoli, absolutely 1000%, I'm going to ask my early interventionist when they go, hey, this is something we're doing. Can you figure out a way to integrate this in your activity? I try not to be like, I don't like, I personally don't like to be micromanaged. So I don't try and micromanage them. I'm like, this is the skill we're working on. We're literally just touching this and we're painting with different fruits and vegetables. Can you come up with an activity and do that with the family the next time you're there? Because I know that our EIs want that direction. They're like, oh my gosh, absolutely. I can do X, Y, and Z. So they want most of them. I know not all of them. And I know people probably work with some that are not, but most of them want to learn and they want to know what they can do to help that family. So if it's a safe thing, like sitting on the floor and encouraging families to have a floor picnic or maybe going outside and painting with popsicles, stuff like that, then I absolutely will encourage my EIs to do that. But if I have a kiddo that is super medically fragile, that has any sort of aspiration, anything like that, I tell them absolutely not. Don't touch them because I haven't had this experience and I'm very grateful, but I've heard one too many stories of SLPs who have had EIs tell parents to stop giving kids their G-tube formula regimen because that'll make them hungry. Yeah. I've had the EI say to me, well, they were saying it was taking too long to feed the baby. So I just told them to use the faster nipple so it would go in quicker. And the kid has unilateral vocal fold paralysis and they're on a slow flow nipple because of X, Y, and Z quit giving them a G-tube feed because it'll just make them hungrier. Those are, we can't even say that because that falls under the license scope of the doctor. So yeah. Yes. I get. And that's like, and I know this is something that we always say all the time, you and I, or when me, you and Aaron are talking about stuff, we're always like, just stay in your lane, just stay in your lane. Like we all have lanes for a reason. Again, why we are interprofessional, why we need to collaborate. Like there shouldn't be any competition. And that's something that's hard for me because that's the area that I don't understand. Because at the end of the day, I don't care if it was me that got that child to take a bite of his chicken nugget for the first time. If I'm the one that got that child to say their first words, it doesn't matter because it's not about me. It's about that child. It's about that child's family. So we all need to be on the same page and we all need to work together to do what's right by them. And that's why the education piece for these early interventionists is such a huge thing. And it's hard. I know we all have a ton of things on our plates. You know, some of us are moms, some of us are dads, some of us have elderly parents we take care of. Some of us work more than one job. And I know that we're all crazy busy, but especially if you travel, I mean, we're in our cars all the time. Like take that five minutes where you would be sipping your coffee in the quiet, which I know we all treasure, but take that five minutes just to call them and be like, Hey, this is what I'm seeing when we're working with so-and-so. Can you do this? Because the more we give them opportunities to do some of the things that we do, but in a safe way, 
the more I feel like they're willing and more receptive for us to give them more constructive criticism or to say, hey, I need you to not do that because it's not safe. But this is what you can do because this is what is safe for them. And this is something you can support me in. Because at the end of the day, I I feel like most of them, 99% of our service coordinators, our early interventionists, case managers, whatever, are in this line of work because they want to help the family. Mm-hmm. One thing that I do a lot of is when I have a, p- a patient with the PFD and an amazing early interventionist, I ask them to help the family navigate the referral request or the application for the specialty insurance. Like here in South Carolina, if you have a child with various types of special needs, regardless of your income, they will qualify for like state Medicaid. But I mean, they have to have severe and profound disabilities and that paperwork is aggressive. And so I asked the early interventionist, please help them navigate this or please help them get to the follow up with the durable medical equipment people to get their G-tube materials in. I mean, those are those are the community support piece that they need to know how to access that. And yes, it is supporting my goals as the licensed professional for the PFD, but it's not putting the child at harm. Now, we got to talk about the, but what happens when? So in the event, and this is advice that was given to us a couple of board meetings, in the event that the non-licensed individual engages within your professional scope of practice, first crush it with kindness. Bring it to their attention. Go straight to the horse's mouth. Hey, this is a problem. You can't do this. And don't phrase it like that. I mean, I'm tired. It was a long day, a lot of hot (laughs) sun. But did you know that this falls within my scope of practice? I want to make sure we're not sending mixed signals. You know, you, you have to be a speech pathologist or an occupational therapist in order to do these things. And then if that crucial conversation doesn't come to pass, Natasha, what do we do next? Uh, Well, unfortunately there's, I try and do it as a hierarchy because go straight to the horse's mouth. Like Michelle said, like, Hey, this is what's going on. If for some reason that doesn't get your point across and they continue to do it because our parents will let you know, they're going to tell you, or you're going to be able to figure it out. We know what's going on. Like it is what it is. We're in people's homes. We see the things. Then you need to go to their supervisor. Like go to the next step up. Okay. I had this conversation with them. I told them X, Y, and Z is for me to do. And I've always placed it as like, hey, when they're being trained, is this something that they're being trained to do? Because I'm not in their trainings. I don't know what they're doing, what they're not doing. So I asked the supervisor, okay, how are they being trained? Is this something that they're supposed to do? If it's a yes, then okay, well, now my problem isn't necessarily with that interventionist. Now my problem is with the people who are training them and we need to work to make that better. If it's a no, they're exclusively told not to, like for instance, like physical manipulation, our ES should not be stretching anybody or twisting things, please don't. Then, okay, then we need to talk to that supervisor. Then the supervisor in hopes will talk to that next person, you know, and have that conversation and hopefully it'll stop. If it doesn't, then you may need to escalate it to the owner of that company, whoever the next person up is. The thing I think that makes it so challenging is there's no governing body. So for instance, if I have an issue with someone in our profession that's doing something 
super, super unethical that I'm like, this is a hard pass. Like there's a, there's no gray here. It's black and white. Then I can submit and I can essentially turn them in, if you will, to ASHA, to the state licensure board. And now I've got like a formal complaint put in. Mm -hmm. And now the governing body can keep that in mind. They can kind of take it from me. So in those instances, because they don't have that, they don't have a license. There's nobody checking off, making sure they're meeting requirements that they should be meeting. I always tell my parents, this is what is expected of that individual. If they start doing X, Y, and Z, you need to tell them to stop. Mm -hmm. We need to empower our parents to understand like, that's, that's not their job. That's not what they should be doing. And the parents need to be able to feel comfortable like, no, that's not something you should be doing with my child. That's what my physical therapist does with my child. Or that's what my speech pathologist does with my child. Not, that's not for you. And then if that individual still doesn't, then we need to empower our families for them to make the request to get a new provider. Because if that individual doesn't respect the wishes of the family and they're just going to keep doing whatever it is that they want to be doing, we don't want them to be near our children. We need to support families in being empowered to say something is not right and I don't want this person in my house anymore. Yes. And it is always first and foremost, patient safety. Collaborating with an early interventionist done right been there, done that personally as a mom, beautiful, beautiful things will happen. Early intervention done wrong when roles, responsibilities, and scope of practices are blatantly disregarded or innocently overlooked. This is patient safety. And Natasha's true North Compass is going to advocate every day. And I know that there are countless others out there that feel exactly the same. Absolutely. Because it's important. And I don't know where I read this quote, but it's something that I just think is super important. When we think about like teamwork, simply stated, it is less me and more we. We don't need to compete with one another. We need to collaborate with one another. It's not a competition. It's not, oh, well, I can do this better than you can do this. At the end of the day, we want that tiny human to not need any of us. That is our ultimate goal is for that tiny human not to need us, not to need intervention, for the family to be so empowered that their child just blossoms and is doing all of the things and is able to perform at their best. And we can't do that if we're all discombobulated or if we're not working together cohesively. Yes. Yay. Beautifully <laughs> stated, darling. Okay. All right. So Natasha. Yes, <laughs> Of course, you and I would run over on time. That's (laughs) beautiful. All right. One, you're coming back for another one. You just didn't know I was going to throw you on that till the end. So we'll sweet talk about that later. (laughs) I just just heard your anxiety go. (laughs) It's Um, it's fine. Nervous sweats now. Nervous sweats. Okay. Uh, okay, If folks want to learn more from you, how can they reach out to you? Yes. So I'm probably like, the least millennial SLP in the world at this point in time. I don't have an Instagram page to associate you and me with anything speech related. So if you do want to talk to me and be my friend, you can email me. It's Natasha, N-A-T-A-S-H-A dot McNeil, M-C-N-E-I-L-L dot S-L-P at gmail.com. If you have any sort of questions or just want to say, hey, I get the nervous sweats too, like 
we just start a, a group, yeah. talk about yeah. deodorants and breathing. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Lovely. I don't know what our group will be about, but we can start something one. amazing. Yes. And, <laughs> and I'm pretty sure that a little birdie told me that you may have a webinar coming out later this summer, later this fall. Is that right? Uh, is, is a possibility. Yes. I, a possibility. Yes. M- yes. Michelle, Michelle makes me do the things everyone. Mm-hmm. It is in the works. I am hopeful to impart more of my limited knowledge, but my passionate <laughs> spirit, I don't know, on all things early intervention for us as speech language pathologists in the future, because it is an island unto its own that is can be kind of murky and all the things. Thank you. Thank you. Everybody listening, we always appreciate you joining us today. Be sure to check us out on Instagram at First Bite Podcast. Check out the new book, Chasing the Swallow, also on Instagram at Chasing the Swallow and available on Amazon. Still never saying that. (laughs) And check out the First Bite Facebook page. And, you know, we're always extra appreciative when you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. So, Natasha, thank you, thank you, everybody. Be sure to tune in next week because I do believe next week is the one and only Marsha Dunkline to close out Dysphagia Awareness Month. So, Natasha, (laughs) thanks, lady. Thank you. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The Alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Babies.